This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Ichiro told me our son would be better off living with his sister and her husband in America. I was too weak to argue with him. My mother said I had lost my mind to give up my child. Her judgment was cruel, but I knew she was right. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Lauren Stevens, author of All Sorrows Can Be Born, based on a true story. The novel opens in 1964 when Noriko, a survivor of the bombing at Hiroshima, and her husband Ichiro, who has tuberculosis, are at the airport preparing to send their nearly three-year-old son to Montana. Ichiro's childless sister lives there with her Japanese-American husband, and their dream of raising a child is about to come true. Noriko has been somewhat bullied by her husband into making the decision to allow her sister-in-law to raise her child in another country. It's a decision Noriko will regret for the rest of her life. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you, Galit, for inviting me on your show. It's a real honor. So you write that all sorrows can be born is based on a personal story. Can you share some of that story? The... uh, novel, All Sorrows Can Be Born, is actually inspired by my husband. Um, And I asked him permission to uh, invade his privacy, as it were, um, to write a book about his life and what happened to him uh, when he was a little boy. And he was living in Osaka, Japan, uh, with his parents. His father had tuberculosis, and this occurred um, in 1961, um, right after he was born. His father had contracted tuberculosis, um, and his mother was struggling to keep the family together. And his father made the earth-shattering request to his mother that they give this little boy away to his aunt, who was living in the United States in Glendive, Montana, with her Japanese-American husband. Neither of them had children of their own. And she, after tremendous pressure and arguments, agreed to give away her little boy. And so these two people went to the airport in Tokyo 
and put my husband on an airplane, not knowing if they would ever see him again. And she made this decision in the hope that by giving up her child and the pressure of having a little boy, somehow her husband would recover from his illness and that perhaps they might have other children in the future. Um, that did not happen. And what ensued was so heartbreaking. And she ended up being a childless mother and a widow. Really heartbreaking. So we I want to ask you more questions about the book, but can we step back for a second? Because you do a lot of stuff. And one of the things is that you started a ghostwriting company. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, my company is called Write Wisdom. And then I added a sister company called Bright, uh, Bright Star Memoirs, which focuses more on people in the entertainment industry. I live in Los Angeles. I've been a documentary filmmaker myself. I've produced theater. And so it was kind of a natural adjunct to my first company, Right Wisdom. Um, Ghostwriting is kind of a sort of under the radar profession and service. What basically happens is that someone will come to me with a story that they're burning to tell. It might be about a particular time in their life, a, a challenge, a tragedy, a happy occasion. And they don't have what I call the chops to write the book. Um, they're not, you know, they're not skilled writers. They're experts in their own particular field. And it's up to us as ghostwriters to turn their story into the written page and get them across the finish line and hopefully create a book that reflects their voice, their thoughts, their feelings, um, their joys, their sorrows, whatever it might be, um, that they hope to share with the world. So we, we become the vehicle uh, by which they are able to achieve that. So and I'm just guessing, I'm just guessing as a mystery writer that um, you're not allowed to suddenly put in a murder in those books or something that interests you. You really have to tell their story. No, no, we hew very close to the truth. Okay. Oh. And yes, oh, definitely. And uh, our biggest challenge is that we write in their voice so that if you were to pick up one of our books and you're a friend of that person whose name is on the cover, you couldn't tell that someone else had written it. We wow. are acknowledged. We are acknowledged in some way uh, in the book that is in our contract. Okay. And sometimes we're asked to be a co-author if it benefits the book. Is, the it, is, it, is it more a Hollywood thing? Being a ghostwriter? No, no. no the, do Are most of the people who want these kind of books written, are they in the movie industry? Not the, at all. 
No? Not at all. Uh, my clients are entrepreneurs in the cosmetics world. They're oh. makeup artists. They're survivors of the Holocaust. They're World War II veterans. Okay. They're successful entrepreneurs. Cool. Okay, so let's get back to the book. Sure. Noriko, the mom, manages to survive. She manages to survive the bombing of Hiroshima with just a yes. scar. She's a little girl. But how did she evade the radiation and other physical destruction that so many uh, residents of Hiroshima suffered? Um, she was at school that morning when the bomb fell. And she and her classmates ran to the cellar and waited to hear the all clear sound, which never came because basically half the city was destroyed. And after about an hour, her father found her and put her in a basket on his bicycle and they made their way home through the rubble and destruction of the city. They were far enough from the epicenter of the bomb, which actually fell on a hospital. That was uh, ground zero, if you will, of the bombing of Hiroshima. It kind of didn't quite hit its target. Uh, the Americans hoped to hit factories and the port city, but that didn't quite happen. And because she was far enough from the epicenter, the effects of radiation were not as severe on her as they were on so many others uh, living in Hiroshima. Probably half the population of the city was destroyed. But she always lived with a fear that this radiation might somehow pop up again, which happened to many, many people. And one of the fears she had when she was pregnant with her little baby was that somehow he would be born with a terrible birth defect, some deformity, or that when she was growing up, her hair might fall out, she might suddenly get sick. Um, no one got a total pass mm -hmm. when the bomb fell. Uh, it was interesting in your book, you talk about the, she talks about this, the, how survivors were given special access to healthcare, annual screenings, free train rides, etc. What else did you learn about survivors of the bombings? And and um, did you learn some of it directly from your mother-in-law? Um, I learned a lot from my mother-in-law, although she didn't really like to talk about it, um, which is somewhat typical of Japanese people in that they, they want to move on with their lives. They want to get past the trauma. And oftentimes they will do something like laugh when they say something that is so heartbreaking. It's their way of dealing with just unspeakable tragedy. Uh, so if someone smiles or laughs, it may be to hide the pain. I think there might even be a song <laughs> about that. And of course, I did a tremendous amount of research on my own, the most famous book of which is Seymour Hershey's book, Hiroshima, uh, which was published initially in the New Yorker magazine and then became a standalone book. Uh, he interviewed many survivors of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
And then I went online and uh, was able to look up archival documentary footage of the actual bombing and saw people on the streets with their skin hanging off of them and the burns that were covering their bodies and the impression of shadows on buildings of people. Uh, It was just, you know, quite unbelievable to see all of this and uh, how quickly we forget, you know, what happened so that those who have survived, the, the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki today, of whom there are fewer and fewer, just as there are fewer and fewer members, you know, people who survived the Holocaust, they want to share their story at this point in the hope that it will never happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk a lot about uh, the society in which Nariku grew up. How different mm-hmm. were Japanese societal views about women from American views back in the 40s? Um, Japanese women had many fewer rights and privileges, and it was only after the Second World War when they crafted a new constitution were rim- women even given the right to vote. And mm-hmm. uh, that was partially due to American women who were working in Japan at that time, who um, gathered women together and spoke to them about uh, what should be their inalienable rights. It kind of radicalized a lot of the Japanese women and the Japanese men were kind of resentful um, of this impact. You know, where is my obedient Japanese wife, you know? She wants to vote. What's going to happen to us? Um, Japanese women also began to recognize that they could work outside the home. Uh, That happened because so many men were off to war, as was the case in the United States as well. And women had to fill in for the jobs that men who were in the military would would often be assigned. And once they felt that freedom or tasted that sense of freedom, uh, many of them wanted to uh, establish a career and pursue something other than just working in the home. That's not to say they didn't love being homemakers and being mothers too. So as it is in our own society, there's that you know, toggling back and forth and that balance between how do you be a good mother and a good wife and also have a career. But World War II really, really uh, was the Maginot line of um, awareness about what was possible for Japanese women. There, there, mm-hmm. was, a, there was a, a phrase in one of my, my, one of my characters says, um, I'm sick and tired of walking behind my husband. The The view is not very good, meaning mm-hmm. that she was staring at his ass and she was mm-hmm. tired of it. So Noriko's husband had uh, has a terrible childhood, which he survived because of his sister. Yes. How much of his decision to send their son to his sister in America stems from how she defended him and took care of him? Um, it had a huge impact. Um, they were orphaned during the war. 
and she looked after him. They were inseparable. They loved each other, um, you know, as the closest of companions. And when she left for the United States and would write to Ichiro, that's the, the, the father of my, uh, you know, the father of my main child character and the husband of Noriko, um, she bemoaned the fact that she could not have children. She, she had two miscarriages. And who knows if some of that had to do with having been in Osaka during, you know, this terrible period um, of being uh, um, starving to death, um, working in a ship building factory, standing on her feet all day long as a little girl, um, eating locusts for food. It took a huge toll on her health and that might've prevented her from having her own child. She and her husband tried, as I say, several times and she suffered two miscarriages. And when Ichiro learned of this through her letters back to him in Japan, he might very well have felt that this was a way of paying her back for taking care of him and being such a devoted sister. So um, there's some real evil here. There are evil characters, let's say. Um, the stepmother mm. uh, is so terrible. And I'm interested to know, did you learn about the stepmother from your sister-in-law who, who raised your husband in Montana? Or did you learn about it from Ichiro's mother, the mother who heard the stories? How, how did that come about? Um, uh, Ichiro's wife, Noriko, who was our, you know, heroine, didn't really know very much about Madame Tamei. That's her name, the evil stepmother. Most of the information about her came from my interviewing uh, my uh, husband's adoptive mother. Uh, okay. And her and so she gave me a vivid picture of this horrible woman's behavior toward these two children. She married their their father after their mother had passed away, also from tuberculosis, and he was single for a couple of years and fell in love with this stunningly beautiful woman who had been in the Takarazuka Theater, and he was bowled over by her beauty. He did not really see how evil she was. I call her the Black Widow Spider. And she it's never, almost, does she ever get her comeuppance? Well, she goes blind. There's that, yes. There's that. Okay. And um, we see, you know, we see her after the war when, uh, she is visited several times um, and her eyesight is taken away. And then, of course, Ichiro runs into her, uh, although he doesn't even know if it's a real, if it's real or it, he's hallucinating. Because with many tuberculosis patients, one of the side effects of the illness is mental turmoil. Mm -hmm. um, and from the medication they take, they often suffer horrible delusions uh, as well as physical 
problems. So we see Madame Tamay uh, in the here and now, as well as a character from the past. But yes, she was truly, truly evil and did her best to separate um, Ichiro and his sister from their father. She didn't was want awful, them, really. Yeah, just she didn't want them to have anything to do with him. With with yeah with, yeah. So sometimes Noriko is a sympathetic character, but sometimes she shows us a different side. Like when she complains about Ichiro bringing up his pathetic childhood all the time, or when mm-hmm. she tells us how she does something to get what she wants, or when she's so jealous of her old school friend that she doesn't want to see her again. So did you prefer to make her more complex than likable? I definitely wanted to make her more complex. I did not want her to be all one thing or another. Um, I find that sort of boring and uninteresting. And I think most novelists would agree with that. But, you you know, you need to have a nuanced character. And every person has their dark side. And so I felt it was important to show that aspect of, of Noriko, that she had a certain aspect of selfishness, that she was many times just fatigued with the constant difficulty of propping up her sick husband when she had a child to raise. Yeah. Um, She becomes involved with the Tenrikyo church to the Mm -hmm. level just below a priestess. I was completely unfamiliar and never heard of it before reading your novel. Can you say just a little bit more? Um, I was, I never heard of it either. But when I was in Japan interviewing my husband's birth mother, who is, uh, her avatar is Noriko, um, I asked her, how did you survive? How did you get through the pain and suffering um, of what happened to you when you lost your husband and your child? And she said to me, "Um, I became a follower of Tenrikyo. Uh, She actually had been involved as a child. Her aunt had been a member of that church as well. Um, So she had a background in it. But once she became an adult, she became more devout. Um, And now, as you say, she is one level below a priestess herself. Um, And the Tenrikyo Church is a sect. It's not unlike Buddhism or Shintoism in Japan. And you can pick and choose there are many people who follow all three um, philosophies. I would almost call them philosophies more than religions, although so many, some people may disagree with me on that. So we'll call it a religion slash philosophy. Um, and there are thousands of followers around the world. I think the biggest chapter is probably in the United States, and it's right here in Los Angeles. Is it, I'm sorry, that, I'm confused about this. Is it a Christian denomination? Is it a no, Shinto no, or no. Hindu or I, no, I don't know? No, it's its own religion that is somewhat um, similar in, in some parts of its teaching to Buddhism or Shintoism, okay. but mm. it has its own founder who is a woman. Mm. And she had a philosophy of life that life is to be lived joyfully. And the highest level of joy is to give to other people. So there's a an act of selflessness that is part of their teaching. Ah. So that when Noriko 
gives up her child with the thought that maybe he will have a better life in the United States. Um, she, you know, she leaned on her own teaching, her own sense of maybe being selfless by giving away the most precious part of her life would somehow end up being a good thing. Mm-hmm. So much later, Hisashi, the son, recalls that his American parents, who were his aunt and uncle, never discussed emotions. They didn't appear together as a family. They didn't attend his school events. So Noriko finds that out. She learns about that in some way. And how is she, what's her response? I don't know if you, um, you didn't go into it in detail. So I want to know when she learned that her husband wasn't raised the way she would have raised him. How did she? You know, she was completely non-judgmental. That is one aspect of Noriko's personality. Um, She was, she all she cared about was that her son be well taken care of. Uh, when she spoke to them by, by phone, it was always, please take care of my son. Please give him a good life. Um, and she didn't judge how they were raising him. Mm. When she so, finally, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. So the bottom line that I want to know is, did is he a nice person? Did they do a good job? Well, I'm married to him. There you go. <laughs> I think they did a wonderful job. Um, okay. You know, they're beautiful people. Um, I adore them. Um, they have many parts to their personalities, as I'm sure I do. Um, they accepted me into their family. Um, I, I, you know, I'm kind of a a strange creature. I'm a New Yorker by birth. I'm Jewish. Um, I didn't grow up in Glendive, Montana, which is where they've lived. I knew nothing about Japanese people and culture till I married my husband. Um, I'm quite a few years older than my husband, which probably initially, you know, might have set them back a pace or two. Um, I know it did my mother. She said, why are you marrying someone so much younger than you are? He's going to get rid of you. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Thanks for that vote of confidence. And here we are married 22 years later. There you go. You sure showed her. Yeah. Oh, so Lauren, what are you working on next? Well, of course, I have all of my uh, writer client or my author client projects, and there are eight of them right now that I'm working on kind of toggling back and forth between one and another uh, with my team of journalists who work with me. But for my own account, um, I always write essays and short stories because that's kind of fun to get in and out. Um, And as far as a book, I have two ideas Um, that I'm kind of playing with at the moment, and I don't know which one will will stick. One is uh, a love affair I had in Paris. I vote um, for that one. Would you? (laughs) Yes, I vote. It's very glam. It's very glam. Okay. Uh, 
And the other one is the possibility of my sister and I doing a book together. Um, she's a year younger than I am. Uh, and every year we have one trip a year that we take. And it's usually to some fabulous place. Mm. And um, we're thinking maybe we would write it together. She's a very well-known artist. So she would do the illustrations and I would write the text. And I got the idea because Jackie uh, Kennedy and her sister Lee Ratzewell did that. They wrote a book called One Special Summer about a summer they spent together in Paris. And it's a really enchanting book. Uh, it's a memoir, but it's done in illustration and text. And so I actually just talked to my sister the other day. She lives in New York. And I we're going away in, in July to Massachusetts and then to Rhode Island. I said, would you be interested in starting to work on that together? And she was very enthusiastic. So we'll see. I mean, it's an exploration of a, of a very close sister bond. Um, we both have crazy senses of humor and we laugh at jokes that nobody else would even call funny. Um, and we've been to so many places together, to Italy, to Paris, um, all different places around the United States. So what's the fabulous part? What's the fabulous thing in Massachusetts and Rhode Island? Okay. So in Massachusetts, we're going to Lenox to a town, uh, to a place called Miraval. Some of your listeners may have heard of it. It's kind of a spa retreat thing. Okay. And we'll be spending five days there. And then we go to Newport, Rhode Island. And we go to a Relais Chateau hotel called um, Ocean. I think it's called the Ocean Hotel. It's right on the water. Um, and we will be treated magnificently. It does and, sound fabulous. Yeah. So it might be fodder for a book. I don't know okay. about that one yet. Yeah, You'll have we'll to see. surprise us all. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Lauren. Thank you, Galit. It's been wonderful visiting with you. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Lauren Stevens about her novel, All Sorrows Can Be Born. Hope you're able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading. Mm-hmm.